took us uh, through that. This morning we're back in Genesis. This, uh, we've been looking at stories and accounts in Genesis, Genesis being the first, first book in the Bible, um, which deals with beginnings. Uh, lots of things are reported to have begun uh, as time moved on, but Genesis brings us the, 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 uh, the Bible's interpretation of things in the beginning, the creation like that, and, uh, and, and the, fall, the fall of the earth. In other words, when the earth, the people moved away from God. And um, they were left without a rock, without a place to go. And after a little while, we read that men began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord. And today, many people are beginning to call on the name of the Lord because of difficulties and situations like that. There, there is an underlying or a very deep theme that runs through the first book in the Bible, the, the book of Genesis, and that is man is inadequate without God. Moving on through the Bible towards what we call the New Testament, uh, where things are explained to us in more detail and Jesus has come into the whole picture on earth and revealed God to us, we find that actually man is lost without God. And so without Jesus, without, without the, the knowledge of God in our lives, without the knowledge of our Creator and all that He is and all that He's done for us, we're actually lost and without hope. But uh, today we have the wonderful gospel message, don't we? We've got the gospel message, the message about Jesus, which um, is about those who are lost can now be found. That's a parable about that, you know, about the lost sheep that was found. It's a story that a lot of people might know quite well, but it, it depicts really God's heart looking for people to find them because uh, that's what his heart is. Um, in a minute, we're going to read in Genesis 29, and uh, just sort of connecting uh, with our with our worship. It's it's good to be able to worship God. And uh, I was thinking, we don't really read about Jacob, who largely figures in the passages we've been looking at recently in Genesis. And I suppose next week we'll be still with Jacob uh, a lot. With a lot to learn about this man. Um, I don't really read about Jacob being a worshipper. And yet right at the very end, when he died, he worshipped, by faith, Jacob worshipped and actually spoke words of blessing over those that followed him. And I thought that's a wonderful end to what was an awful, messy life. And so many people have messy lives. And yet the hope to end up with the knowledge of God and, and the knowledge that lives that are filled with faith and love for God, you know, the opportunity is still there. And so it's wonderful to, as we read about Jacob, and we, as we look this morning at, at Jacob, he's moving into more mess, as it were. Uh, when we left Jacob, he was a fugitive. He was running for his life. He was running for his life because Esau wanted to kill him. And why did Esau want to kill him? Because he deceived Jacob with his mother, had deceived him and stolen from him and treated him very badly. And I hope you'll just excuse the words I'm going to use now. But if we look at Jacob and we look at people around us, Jacob was a so-and-so. 
And I use that word because they're the sort of words we use today, aren't they? He was a so-and-so. He was also Jack the Lad. We read in a minute, we're going to read of his prowess, his virility. We don't hear of him complaining about the opportunities he had in that score. But he slept with these women and, uh, you know, he, you don't find him complaining. He was Jack the Lad. But I want you to use another word now, and I, you, you excuse me for using it, but it's what people today, he was a bastard. That's how people would describe that sort of person today. He was. That's how you would describe him. The way he treated people, he was a bastard. I mean, I would use those words because it's used very much out of context. It's not true, true to form. But that's what he, they would say, you know? And on that, on that sort of language, people always seek to get their own back, don't they? And that's what Esau tried to do. So Jacob was a fugitive. He was running. And he, with the help of his mother, he left home, we believe, penniless, or without any, uh, any financial uh, support from his father. And that he left home, and, that's where, and God met him. John brought us to the town where God actually met him in a dream. God met him. But we find this, this man, Jacob, running for his life. He's also got this in mind, that I'm running for my life, but I might even find a wife where I'm going now to be with uh, my mother's relatives. But if you imagine, Jacob is going to travel four or five hundred miles in the hot desert, with very little support, very little food, he's going to feel a cast out, he's going to feel alone, he's going to feel despised, he's going to feel rejected, he's going to just wonder where he's going. And yet God moves providentially for Jacob when he arrives in this place, Haran, to which he's going. When we begin reading in 29 in a minute, we will find him in Haran. And I believe God has providentially moved time-wise and situation-wise. And he's brought him to the place that he can begin to find himself again. Isn't it wonderful when God brings us to a place where we can begin to find ourselves again? And something else... Uh, which is quite interesting in the Bible, that uh, you will have heard, I think you would have heard, the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a phrase which is, moved, is used throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it often refers to the covenant promise that God gave to Abraham. And so when people wanted to refer to that in later years following these stories, people would be referring to this, uh, the validity of the, the covenant that God gave to Abraham, and they would keep making reference to it that God was keeping his promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's another phrase which is used more frequently than that, 
and it's the God of Jacob. And it's the one we don't really understand sometimes because this man with a messy life, with all his awfulness, with all his situation, people recognise that God identified with Jacob. That whoever Jacob was and whatever he'd done, God was still there for him, to help him and to guide him, to lead him and to bring him to into his own purposes. And it's an amazing phrase. And what is it all about, this phrase, God of Jacob? It's about God's elect, what we, the Bible calls God's election. That's a, that's a bit of a funny word to understand. But is that God, God chose him, no matter what he was, no matter what he'd done, no matter how he treated people, no matter what he'd done, no matter the conflict he'd caused and the disappointment and the hurt, no matter what, he, God still chose him. Because God's choice is more powerful than who man is. It's, it's linked with this fact that whoever we are, God really wants us. He really, can I just tell you this, my God really wants you. God, I say this with my tongue in my cheek, but God cannot be God without the people he's created. I know theologically that's difficult to understand, but God is God because he created people in his own image, and he wanted to work with people. He wanted to work with you and me. He want, and God is here this morning and he wants to work with us. Peter and his prayer and, and Julie, you know, and, and the other Julie and, and Janet, you know, it's, it's all that God wants to work with us. He doesn't want to work any other way. He wants to work with broken people so that his glory might be shown to the earth. It's a wonderful thing. And so when we read about the God of Jacob... People are saying, ah, oh, I see a God who cares. I see a God who loves. And I see a God who's not just interested in people who are trying to climb the ladder and be good. I'm, I'm interested in people who are desperate and in need. And God is identifying with his world when we read about the God, the God of Jacob. Now let's, let's read... Um, the story is about Jacob uh, marrying Leah and Rachel. And we're going, to, um, I'm going to read Genesis 29. Just tap back to it again. Do you need to read it? Uh, this one. And the title over this story is Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. We think married two wives? Oh. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. Now, Jacob's going to Haran. 
and he happens to meet up with people who are from Haran. Is that God's providence or not? <laughs> yeah, it is. They said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, yeah, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, a near relative, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my and my flesh. And he stayed with him. A month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then, Laban, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Wow. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Aha. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You can hear Jacob muttering, Well, why didn't you tell me that? Verse 27, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhar to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Well, what do we make of this story?
There are so many things we could say about the story, but we, we, I think you could hear people muttering and saying to Jacob, well, you've got your comeuppance, mate. That's what you did to others, so it's happened to you. And in a sense, in a sense, that's... It's a form of justice, isn't it, really? But um, in the New Testament, there's a verse which, which says to... And, and, and it's spoken to Christians... And it's that, that what you sow, you rape. But I think that's pretty true the whole world over, isn't it? What you sow, you reap. If you're in a family and you sow violence, you reap violence. Your children see it, they go on, and they're violent, maybe where they go. If there's conflict in home life, very often a child will grow up with conflict. But it seems conflict seems to breed conflict, doesn't it? And so as the writer to the New Testament Christians is saying, you know, well, in a sense, what you, what you sow as Christians, you will reap. Let's look at it positively. If you sow kindness, you reap kindness. If you sow love, it'll create love. If you, if you sow good things, you, it will happen that that's... I mean, like a church, if we sow these things to people around us and within our community, that's what we will be. What you sow, what you reap. And so for Jacob, that was true. But it's really strange how the deceiver became the deceived. The deceiver became the deceived. And the whole, the whole world, I don't know if you'd trust anybody in that family, would you? It would be difficult to trust anybody in that family. Think of a church that could be like that. Difficult to trust anybody. And so what we sow, we reap. And it's good to have that concept to think about the things that we're actually sowing. In church situations, if you sow conflict, you actually reap it and stuff like that. But for Jacob, he, he was doing something which actually, he sowed deceit and so he reaped deceit. And so you, we might say, well, why does God call himself the God of Jacob? Because God chose him to work with him, not because he, he was, not because he had anything to offer, and it was because he had nothing to offer that God was able to work with him. And this morning we come here, you know, I, I feel good when I come here on a Sunday morning, and sometimes you, you build up this point system, don't you? Well, I've done this, 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 and this, and this. But in the end, it's, it is actually valueless to God. What is of value to him is who he is, what he's done for us. Who he is, what he's done for us, and all that he has done in this earth. If we, if we can't end up with that, we, we are just sort of valueless people. And that's the way Jacob was heading. Like I said earlier, you don't read about him being a worshipper. But in the end, when, God, when he was brought to the end of his life, we read about, by faith, he worshipped God and blessed others following on after. And I think that's an amazing transformation. It didn't happen to the end of his life. This deceit, and I could, I could go into it quite a bit, but I'm not going to. But it was very specifically for Jacob. 
the way that it happened, it's amazing, really. And you, you say, well, surely God doesn't do, things like, doesn't do things like that, and probably he doesn't, but he allowed it to happen. And I don't think there was any conversation between what Jacob had done earlier in his life that he told, I don't think he told Laban all about his earlier misgivings. And yet it worked out that the deceiver was deceived. And I don't know about you, but in my life, two or three things have happened to me. And I've sort of said to them, sort of in my spirit, I've said, well, why hasn't God allowed that to happen to me? Why has this happened to me? You know, I don't want this sort of thing to happen to me. And in a flash, it's come to me, well, didn't you do that to that person once? Didn't you do that to that person once? And the wonderful thing about it is, is God's not judging Jacob, but he's fathering him. He's fathering him. He's bringing him to a place where Jacob can understand God in a way that he'd never understood him before. And I think this world needs to understand a God they don't understand. We need to understand a God who really understands us more than we realise. More than we understand. Going back to the word election that I spoke that God chose in the Bible, it's one of the most powerful demonstrations of God's love because, number one, there's no discrimination. Now, with the migrant refugee situation, whatever you might call it, I think we notice the discrimination that's happening quite strongly. And this is a difficult thing to work through. It was a difficult thing for the early church to work through, too. Not discriminating one against the other. The fact that God chooses us, he chose to bless us, is not because of who we are and what we've done, but because God does not discriminate one between another. He God, the Bible tells us that God loved the world so much that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that, what does that say then? There's no discrimination. In real terms, it means this, that everybody has the same opportunity to be where we are this morning, to be where God wants us to be. No discrimination with God means that everybody has the same opportunity. The door's open to everybody. Hitler had the same opportunity? No. He didn't have the same opportunity, did he? He did. Election means there's no discrimination between people, peoples, or the way we behave. And that's what tells us about Jacob, you see. No discrimination. How easily we discriminate sometimes one between the other. Secondly, election is the God of Jacob then is the God who met him with nothing. When he had nothing. No discrimination. God meets people when they have nothing. You remember last week, uh, not last week, the week before, we, um, like John brought us the, the story about the, the, the dream that Jacob had, the stairway uh, of earth between earth and heaven. 
And it actually, not that that's what the passage teaches us so much, but uh, very often we talk about man tries to climb the stairway to God, where in actual fact it's God has come to us. And that is the other concept, you know, that is quite widely believed in our world, especially with uh, other faiths, is man needs to climb the ladder to reach God. When in actual fact it's actually God who's moved down the stairway to us. He's come to us. No discrimination, nothing. And it enthrones God as sovereign, but also brings him right to where we are now. Right to where we are now. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that uh, God is here with us in this room? And we have the opportunity to reach out and touch him. Paul said to those early Christians too, you know, God is not very far from any one of us. In Acts, there is a God to find, and he is not hard to find. Having made himself approachable, findable, and acceptable, God is not far from any one of us. So this thought about election, the God of Jacob, we may not understand that fully, but what does it tell us today? It helps us realise that God is more accessible than we ever thought. And I'll come on to that in a moment. God is more accessible than we ever think. It's our minds that stop us doing, you know, what is available to us. Looking at Jacob and the way he behaved and the way his life was, there were many opportunities that Jacob had to access God fully in his life. But he didn't take them. But the access was there. And it's about this opportunity. And today, you know, I think Steve mentioned or someone mentioned earlier about we're here, this is the day of God's grace, you know. It's a day of full opportunity. No one barred, whoever they are, to reach out and touch God and to receive what he's offered through Jesus Christ. So we realise that God is more accessible than what we ever thought. It also reduces the distance that in our intellect we might place God. Now this is quite important. I wonder where you're placing God this morning. Just think in your mind, where are you placing God? Are you, are you placing him in the past? Oh, he's only, a, he's only a Bible thing, you know, something that people believed on many years ago. And so it's quite easy to place God in the past. You know, not, not relevant today. We have different ways of doing things today. We actually do things our own way, and we don't take God into account. So we can put him in the past. We can put him in the future. God's just going to judge the world and just throw it all away. He will just wind it up. And he will smash it all to pieces because he finds the things going on on the earth are so terrible. He might, you might put him in the future. You might put him in other religions, in other faiths. That's where we might place him. 
In actual fact, he's right here. It's actually a tremendous responsibility. And it's an amazing thing. As Paul said in Acts, God himself is not far from every one of us. So it's the opportunity. And Jacob had those opportunities. God's working with Jacob showed us that Jacob had many, many opportunities. So just to tie that bit up, there is a God to find. He is not hard to find because he's made himself approachable, findable, and acceptable. So God was working in Jacob's life. And this, what we have read this morning, is just a process towards Jacob coming to a fuller understanding of who God is. So the deceived becomes... The deceiver becomes the deceived and he finds ultimately that God is fathering him. Or as the word the Hebrew says, God's discipline is not onerous really. He's just helping us to understand how to get back to where we need to be. And that's the main thing of God. I mean, because people have a picture of oh God, he's got a big stick and he's just bashing everybody. And that's not true. God fathers us back to the place where we can know him wonderfully well. And that's really what all this account with Laban deceiving him was. Because Jacob understood that what he'd done, he'd hurt others. And when you understand what you've done to others, and we understand how awful our sin is, then you begin to realise how great God is and what he's done for us. And that's an amazing thing. We won't understand it if God just hits people and bashes them with a big stick. So I said earlier, knowing this election of God, God's choice over us helps us realise, really, that God is more accessible than we ever thought. Than we ever thought. I'm just going to wind up with two things about Jesus because the life of Jacob shines a light on Jesus. You say, how does he do that? Well, the negative things in Jacob show up the positive things in Jesus. Like I said earlier, it seems that this family, it would be difficult to trust anyone. Can you trust the energy companies today? Do anybody trust solicitors today? Anybody in trust insurance companies today? I see you all laughing. But you see, the whole business world is riddled with deceit. The whole business world is riddled with deceit. And church cannot be doing with that, really. We must be open and true. But the whole point about it is, it points out to us the validity and the wonder and the sinlessness of Jesus. That's an important thing that helps us in our worship. Many surveys have been taken out, carried amongst friends and spouses about honesty. White lies reveal an alarming activity in this area. You know? Even between closest friends and with spouses, and sometimes within churches. We have to admit that. You know? 
Jesus is presented to us in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, as a sinless saviour, a dependable friend, the only unblemished character who was known to be completely transparent when he was here. Not a Jacob. Not a Jacob. Jesus is this wonderfully perfect. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, No deceit, and this was a prophetic word before Jesus came, no deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. In 1 Peter 2.22, he says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. John 7 verse 18 says, But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So who can we trust in this world today? I think there's one good answer, isn't there? We can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus. A sinless saviour, a dependable friend, the only unblemished character who is known to be completely transparent, the way, the truth and the life. And the second thing about Jesus is this, Jacob, as his name implies, came to be given the name which has the implications of one wanting the opportunity to trip. That's one of the implications of the meaning of Jacob's name. One who wants to trip others up. One looking for an opportunity. He was known as the grasper, the grabber. But one who's waiting for implications. The other thing which his name means is this. Striving by policy, or maybe by guile, to prevail over another. And some people see God like that. as God is trying to get one over us. That's a misconceived thought. God is not trying to get one over us. He wants to be true to us. However, Jesus presented to us completely the opposite, watching to help or bless, and to raise each one of us up to a new place. What is it in the New Testament says? One degree of glory to another. He wants to raise us up. He wants to bless us. But this wonderful verse in Philippians which says about Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You notice the point again? The thing that he was equal of God was, as a man was not a thing to be grasped at. Jacob was a grasper. He was out to get it by his own means, to get his way, as it were. But Jesus was not like that. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And that's the lesson that Laban taught Jacob. You can't stay here, mate, and live on the goodness of my land. You've got to serve us. You've got to go out, you've got to work, you've got to earn your wages. You've got to learn to be a servant here amongst us. And it's the place... It's that great lesson that God's trying to father us into to help us to learn to serve one another and to serve God for who he is and what he's done. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, who we can truly say 
is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord Jesus, we love you for what we have been brought to see who you are. A sinless saviour, a faithful and dependable friend, one with an unblemished character, which the world is trying to cast all these things against you as a man who committed sin when he was here. But you didn't, Jesus. A totally sinless life and we love you. And we honour you. And we give thanks again for this opportunity to worship you. In Jesus' name.